Blog Talk Radio. Psalm 82, a psalm of Asaph. God standeth in the congregation of the mighty. He judgeth among the gods. How long will ye judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Selah. Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Rid them out of the hand of the wicked. They know not, neither will they understand. They walk on in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are out of course. I have said, Ye are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. But ye shall die like men, and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit all nations. Well, good evening, everyone. This is Kennard Brown speaking. I'm your host for the Merciful Servants of God Biblical Instructional Program. I'm doing this again on a Friday. Uh, I may end up doing it permanently on Friday. I don't know. We'll, we'll see. Well, uh, the title of this Bible study is The Heavy Matters of the Tor, or the weightier, in the King James Version says, Matters of the Tor. The reason why I decided to give this Bible study is because well, I've noticed this for a while, me and my wife, but in the Messianic and uh, Christian groups that wake up and, oh, I need to start keeping all the, the laws of God to the best of my ability, they start to, to get into the Hebraic background of the Bible itself. I mean, after all, the entire Bible was written mostly by Jews. I think Luke was a Gentile, and even though he was around Jews and so forth, and in a sense you can say he was spiritually a Jew, but physically he wasn't, and he wrote the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. But the tendency is when people start to understand that, duh, Jesus is a Jew, or Yeshua is a Jew, and then they start to understand uh, Jesus' name is actually Yeshua or Yahshua or different uh, variations. And then they start to really understand, hey, uh, Yeshua did state, uh, let's look at this scripture again that I used a quote here in John chapter 4. John chapter 4, verse 22. I'm going to read this in the complete Jewish Bible version. It says, you people don't know what you are worshiping. We worship what we do know because salvation comes from the Jews. And so they start to understand that, and then they go off into um, traditional Judaism, and they find out about head coverings, they find out about talits, zitzits, uh, the mezuzah. Also, they, they find out about uh, other things, um, wearing your beard properly and, and so forth, and they start to focus on that too much to the point where they feel that if they don't wear their beard properly, then they're going to be thrown in the lake of fire. And I'm going to show you the people who are going to be thrown in the lake of fire. And I don't see people who don't wear their beard properly, uh, perfectly, are going to be tossed in the lake of fire. But that's just one example. But Or I don't see where if a woman did not wear a head covering, then she's going to be tossed in the lake of fire. See, we have to 
get a perspective on these things. All right, and we can't get too carried away. And it's and it's fine for those who are listening to me. Uh, it's fine that you finally do understand that Jesus is a Jew. Congratulations. Uh, that that's that's fantastic. But you have to be careful not to get so wrapped up in that that head coverings and tallits and zitzits and wearing your beard right and and uh, the mezuzah, that becomes so important to you that, that you forget about the heavy matters of the Torah, the important matters of the Torah. And that's what I'm going to talk about today, because I see that there's even a prophecy in Matthew chapter 25 that I'm going to go over that prophesies that the majority of people in the assemblies, they're... They don't have their, their lamps lit. And when you understand Matthew chapter 5, that means that you're not letting your light shine. You're not letting your good works be seen by other people. You're not doing any good works. All you're focusing on is head coverings and and how you wear your beard and everything else. And you have excuses uh, that, well, people are poor because they, it's their fault and they make financial mistakes. Now, where is that in the Bible that that's the, the, the main reason why people are poor? You know what's in the Bible about poor and, and people's attitude like that, let's turn to Proverbs chapter 29. This is what's in the Bible, and we better get our act together because if we don't, if we don't start to be concerned about the cause of the poor, we're not going to be in the kingdom, plain and simple as that. We have to start caring about one another. If these women and, and men that focus so much on kippahs and head coverings, that they had that much concern for the poor, we would have so many more people in the assemblies today. Anyway, Proverbs chapter 29, verse 7, says the righteous understands the cause of the poor. The cause of the poor. And another um, translation says the righteous knows the plea of the poor. The wrong does not understand such knowledge. Let's take a look. Uh, this word, uh, it means judgment when it says the um, the cause of the poor. They understand the strife of the poor. They understand what they're going through. Okay, and then consider if in the King James Version. It means to acknowledge, be aware, be aware of what's going on. If you're not aware of the poor, if you don't care about the poor, how can you understand something if you don't care about it, right? Am I making sense? But anyway, back in the complete Jewish Bible version, it says the righteous, and righteous is defined uh, in the Bible, in Psalm 119, verse 172, keeping the commandments. So let's go back to Proverbs 29, verse 7 again. The people who keep the commandments, or righteous people, understands the cause of the poor. But the wicked is unconcerned. They don't have a concern. They don't care. They use excuses like this one gentleman. Uh, got me extremely angry when he said it, that most people are poor because of their financial mistakes. Show me that in the Bible where it says that. What the Bible clearly indicates, because I have done a study on the poor, and I am concerned about the poor. I give to the poor the best I can. And I think about the poor almost every day, okay, well, I do think about the poor every day, I think, you know. Very seldom I don't think about the poor. Uh, I've done an extensive study on this. And the Bible plainly reveals that, sure, laziness is a 
form of poverty, but the main cause of poverty is oppression. Oppression. Let me prove it to you. One scripture, one of my most popular ones that I quote all the time here. Okay, Proverbs chapter 30. Verse 14 in the complete Jewish Bible version, in the King James Version, it says there is a generation, and there's no doubt that it's talking about this generation today. Proverbs 30, verse 14, there is a type of people whose teeth are like swords. Yes, their fangs are knives. They devour the poor from the earth, the needy from humankind. That's the kind of world we live in today, folks. And do you see any indication at all? Of laziness. But I'm sure if you have a brain, and if you have common sense, and if you're using it, that you see oppression. There's a type of people whose teeth are like swords. Their fangs are knives. He looks at, God looks at, as, uh, he looks at oppressors as people who have teeth like swords and fangs. I know you're familiar with Dracula, right? Well, fangs, like knives. They're blood suckers. That's what they are. And they suck all the life out of poor people. And then Psalm chapter 10. Verse 1, this is a prophecy. And for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear, God is letting you know, or Elam is letting you know, that he understands the poor. He sees what's going on. And this is what's going on in the world today, as it perhaps was going on back then. But this is a prophecy. A lot of the Psalms, which are writings that can be converted over to music, it's prophetic music, a lot of it. Psalm chapter 10, verse 1. Why, Adonai, which means Lord in Hebrew, do you stand at a distance? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Verse 2, the wicked in their arrogance, in their arrogance, hunt down the poor who get caught in the schemes they think of. For the wicked boasts about his lust. He blesses greed and despises Adonai. So obviously he's talking about the wicked rich. Verse 4, every scheme of the wicked in his arrogance says there is no God, so it won't be held against me. Verse 5, his ways prosper at all times. Again, it's talking about the wicked rich person. Your judgments are way up there, so he takes no notice. His, advers his adversaries, he scoffs at them. He scoffs at them all. Verse 6, in his heart he thinks, I will never be shaken. I won't meet trouble, not now or ever. Verse 7, his mouth was full of curses, deceit, oppression. Oppression. Under his tongue, mischief and injustice. Verse 8, he waits near settlements in ambush and kills an innocent man in secret. This is going on worldwide as I'm speaking. His eyes are on the hunt for the helpless. CNN, one of the good things that they are really good at is, is their stories on the poor. And they were talking about how slavery is, is really bad, slave trade, worldwide. And this is what he's talking about here. He waits near settlements in ambush and kills an innocent man in secret. His eyes are on the hunt for the helpless. Lurking unseen like a lion in his lair, he lies in wait to pounce on the poor. 
then seizes the poor and drags him off in his net. Slavery. That's, and I tell you, black Americans can really visualize that verse. Okay, because that's what happened with us. We were taken in a net, chained up, and kidnapped against our will to be slaves. Which is, again, according to Torah, that's a, that's a sin that is punishable by death. But anyway, verse 10. Yes, he stoops, crouches down low, and the helpless wretch falls into his, cr- into his clutches. Helpless. And, of course, uh, we don't punish people who slave people uh, who enslave people today, according to our laws. But according to God's law, when he comes back, he's going to reinstitute this law. And people who dare do something like that will be killed. But anyway, uh, verse 11, he says in his heart, God forgets, he hides his face, he will never see. Arise, Adonai. God, raise your hand. Don't forget the humble. Verse 13, why does the wicked despise God and say in his heart, it won't be held against me? And that's what many of them are saying right now. Verse 14, you have seen, for you look at mischief and grief so that you can take the matter in hand. The helpless commits himself to you. You help the fatherless. Here we go again with the the theme that there's many, many families that are fatherless. It was the the same way back then as it is today. It's even worse today. That's why I've been talking about the Elijah message, uh, that a lot of that message has to do with reconciliation of the fathers and the children, because there's many fatherless families that's the reason why there's a lot of wickedness in the world these fathers are not teaching their children correctly they're teaching their children what they think is right they're not going to the bible to check and see if it is right verse 15 break the arm of the wicked as for the evil man search out his wickedness until there is none left adonai is king forever and ever the nations have vanished from his hand adonai you have heard what the humble want you encourage them and listen to them to give justice to the fatherless. Here we go again. The fatherless and the oppressed. Many oppressed people are fatherless. And I'm not just talking about not having a father around. You can have a father around, but the father doesn't act like one. He doesn't act like a, a true father. He doesn't care. He doesn't spend the time that he should with his children. He says, so that no one on the earth will strike terror again. That's what's going on right now. People that don't care for the poor and that call themselves religious and messianic, you're a bunch of phonies. That's right. And you need to repent. And you need to do what Yeshua told us all to do in Matthew chapter 5. Let's go there. This is what we're supposed to be. Uh, we're going to be celebrating Hanukkah soon. And it's about being light to the world, just like the Messiah was a light to the world. We should be light to the world, too. But how are we lights to the world? Well, in Matthew 5, verse 13, it says, You are the salt for the land. This is in a complete Jewish Bible version. But if salt becomes tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except being thrown out for people to trample on. Verse 14, you are light for the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Likewise, when people light a lamp, they don't cover it with a bowl, but put it on a lampstand so that it shines for everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before people so that they may see the good things you do and praise your Father in heaven. That's what true or pure worship is about, folks. 
It's not about wearing head coverings and tulips and zitzit and mezuzahs and, and and so forth. Mikvah baths. You can have as many mikvah baths as you want, but if you don't have the right attitude doing it, it's not going to do you any good. God wants us to do good works toward one another. That's what he wants to see. That's a part of the heavy matters of the Torah or the teachings of Elohim or God. Okay. I'm going to get back to that here, but what I'm going to do... Well, there's not really anything going on in the world right now. Um, well, actually, there's quite a few things going on in the world when I'm talking about. I'm just saying not something that I can say, hey, it's going to happen tomorrow, then you, uh, the whole world's going to be destroyed, no, nothing like that. And of, course, of course, he hasn't told me anything like that, and I'm not going to act like he did, like Harold Camping. But the point of the matter is uh, things are things are so bad right now, anything could happen tomorrow. Uh, you have Russian warships uh, near Syria right now. Uh, the United Nations is, I think, uh, they contemplating putting sanctions, uh, which is punishments, uh, not allowing a certain trade or, or having tariffs, which is a tax on, on goods that you sell overseas. Uh, they may do a number of those things to Syria to try to punish them. Uh, right now, we're still, even though our <laughs> our unemployment rate dropped uh, four percentage points, you know, 8.6% now, uh, those people who are unlearned and not, and they, they focus on movies and, and have their brains blown up and looking at television and playing games, they'll understand that that is not the true unemployment rate. The, the true unemployment rate, when you count everyone, that even those who aren't working is, is in the 20 percentile. All right? So that's the truth, and the government, as they tend to do, they like to fudge up everything. And, and they know that as long as you look at your football games and, and look at your cartoons and look at uh, X Factor and American Idol, that... that uh, you won't even care about all these other things, you know. So, so it's all being controlled by the uh, Council of Foreign Relations, uh, the Trilateral Commission, and all these other folks. And if you want to know more about uh, how the devil is deceiving the world through those two organizations, I, I highly recommend that you uh, go to infowars.com. No, actually, not infowars.com. Uh, you go on YouTube. While they still have these movies on, on YouTube before they take them down, and you need to type in, um, I'm trying to think of the movie, which one would be good for them to look at, one of Alex Jones, that describes the, the Trilateral Commission and the Council of Foreign Relations. If you don't know, oh well. Um, well, the Obama deception, that's one of them. I think there's, yeah, the, yeah, the New World Order, the Invisible Empire, that's another one. Actually, that's a real good one. It helps you really understand Daniel chapter 7. I'm going to do a Bible study about that soon. Uh, I, I believe Elohim, matter of fact, I know he's given me some understanding of that. And uh, we need to understand Daniel. Daniel's going to play a big role, his prophecies that uh, Elohim has given him. are going to play a big role here in the future. But economic-wise, things are really bad. Uh, the third seal is if it hasn't been totally removed, it's about to be removed. And and we are suffering uh, worldwide here. And it's only going to get worse uh, because countries are not stopping printing money out of thin air. And that's the simplest way I can describe it. 
uh, when you're printing money that's not backed up by by um, commodities. Commodities are gold, silver, other solid things. Then what you're doing is devaluing the currency, which will cause inflation, prices to go up because businessmen and women have to make money, so they have to raise their prices. And when inflation goes up, then that's going to cause a big problem. The loaf of bread is going to be twenty, fifty dollars a loaf, and and so forth. That's where we're headed, folks. This is going to be the worst depression ever. If you don't believe me? Type in Gerald Salente, G-E-R-A-L-D-C-E-L-E-N-A-T-E. I think he's an Italian. Gerald Salente, and he has free videos um, segments when he talks to certain credible um, news uh, television programs and so forth. And in Infowars.com, just wake up, folks. Uh, you, you can't keep on thinking that each generation is not going to get worse, and uh, in each generation, God's not going to come back. Eventually, He's going to come back, and, and and some and and one of these generations. And all indications are it's this generation. It's this nuclear bomb generation that started in 1945 with the destruction of Hiroshima, Hiroshima rather, and Nagasaki. August 6, 1945, where Harriet Truman stated that mankind has entered into tapping into the power of the universe. Type that in there. Harriet Truman, one of our presidents of the United States, he gave a speech shortly after they destroyed, not destroyed, but they pretty much uh, damaged uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki back in 1945. So, let's um, understand that we're living in dangerous times here, in perilous times. Outlined in Second Peter chapter, not Second Peter, Second Timothy chapter three. And we must prepare. We are we are the generation that will not pass away until all these things will be fulfilled. So we we have to to get serious here. I, mean, I don't know what date. I don't know any anything like that. But I can estimate. First uh, Thessalonians chapter 5 says that we should know and be aware of the times that we're living in. And the good news is that we are living in the days of the Messiah uh, when he's going to be coming back. The bad news is that there's going to be a lot of catastrophe and problems occurring before he comes back. But he did state that you can be worthy to escape all these things. And I don't know about you, but I want to be one of the worthy to escape all these things. I think anyone they have a sane mind, wouldn't want to go through the tribulation. So um, let's continue to watch the news. As a matter of fact, uh, God made it easy for you. Uh, type in watch.org. Uh, this gentleman does a very good job of watching Jerusalem. There's rumors, as Yeshua stated in Matthew chapter 24, that Israel may attack, may attack Iran. And if that happens, folks, uh, more than likely that's going to be World War III. Uh, quite a few experts are saying that that's what's going to happen. So we're that close, folks. So we got to get serious, and we can't get, get into our little world uh, to fill in and and to lead and head coverings and focusing on that so much that you don't forget that, that you don't understand that the world is falling apart here. Okay. All right. So let's go over the tour readings. And let's see. 
We're going to cover uh, Genesis chapter 28, verse 10, to Genesis 32, verse 3, courtesy of Habat.org. Uh, it says, Jacob leaves his hometown of Beersheba and journeys to Haran. On the way, he encounters the place and sleeps there, dreaming of a ladder connecting heaven and earth with angels climbing and descending on it. God appears and promises that the land upon which he lies will be given to his descendants. In the morning, Jacob raises the stone on which he laid his head on, on an altar and monument, pledging that it would be made the house of God. And that's interesting that the house of God is linked with heaven. In Haran, Jacob stays with and works for his uncle Laban, or Laban, tending Laban's sheep. Laban agrees to give him his younger daughter, Rachel, whom Jacob loves in marriage and return for seven years' labor. But on the wedding night, Laban gives him his elder daughter, Leah. Instead, a deception Jacob discovers only in the morning. Jacob marries Rachel, too, a week later after agreeing to work another seven years for Laban. Leah gives birth to six sons, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah. Now, this is where the Jews come from, folks. Okay. <laughs> Judah is uh, Leah's, one of Leah's children. Okay? And this is from where the Jews have come from. Judah. All right? Issachar, Zebulun, and a daughter, Dinah, why Rachel remains barren. Rachel gives Jacob her handmaid, Bilal, Bilhah, as a wife to bear children in her steed, and two more sons, Dan and Naphtali, are born. Leah does the same with her handmaid, Zilpah, so here's a little competition here, popping babies all over the place like popcorn, and who gives birth to Gad and Asher. Finally, Rachel's prayers are answered, and she gives birth to Joseph. Jacob has now been in Haran for 14 years and wishes to return home, but Laban pursues him to remain, now offering him sheep in return for his labor. Jacob prospers despite Laban's repeated attempts to swindle him. After six years, Jacob leaves Haran in stealth, fearing that Laban would prevent him from leaving with the family and property for which he labored. Laban pursues Jacob, but is warned by God in a dream not to harm him. Laban and Jacob make a pact on Mount Galed, attested to by a pile of stones, and Jacob proceeds to the Holy Land where he is met by angels. And that's a pretty good story there of the ladder and so forth. Now, Hosea chapter 11 verse 7 to Hosea 12, verse 14. We're going to go over that here, the summary, the uh, Torah section of the uh, traditional Torah readings. Now, this week's Haftorah mentions Jacob's flight from home to the field of Aram, an episode that is recounted in this week's Torah reading, which I just read. The Haftorah begins with the prophet Hosea's rebuke, of the Jewish people for forsaking God. Nevertheless, Hosea assures the people that God will not abandon them. How can I give you Ephraim and deliver you to the hands of the nations? If you understand Ephraim, it, in most contexts, it, it does represent the ten tribes of Israel that supposedly were lost, but according to your Davidi, uh, go to his website, www.britam, B as in boy, R-I-T-A-M dot org, to find out the truth of that. Uh, as I've stated many times in this program, and it may be a shock to you who's listening to me for the first time, but the ten tribes of Israel aren't lost. They have been found by people who know, like myself and your, your Davidi and quite a few other people. 
they consist of the United States, the British Commonwealth of Nations, Canada, the countries in Northwestern Europe, also South Africa, New Zealand, and Australia. And, of course, any any Gentile outside of those regions who uh, believe that Yeshua, or Jesus, is the Messiah, because he's the King of Israel, and if you believe in the King of Israel, you become a part of the Commonwealth of Israel. So anyway, Hosea assures the people that God will not abandon them. How can I give you Ephraim and deliver you to the hands of the nations? I will not act with my fierce anger. I will not return to destroy Ephraim. The prophet discusses the misdeeds of the northern kingdom of Israel and the future degeneration of the kingdom of Judea, or the West Bank today, right? He contrasts their behavior to that of their forefather Jacob, who was faithful to God and prevailed against enemies, both human and angelic. The Hator also makes mention of the ingathering of the exiles, which will occur during the final redemption, which is coming soon, folks. They shall hasten like a bird from Egypt and like a dove from the land of Isaiah, which is around the area of Iraq today. And I will place them in their houses, says the Lord. Okay, and the renewed covenant scripture for today, and then we're going to get into the Bible study. Uh, John chapter 1, verses 50 to 51. Yeshua answered him, You believe all this just because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. And then verse 51, Then he said to him, Yes, indeed, I tell you that you will see heaven open and the angels of God going up and coming down on the Son of Man. So the reason why I quoted this is because you, I just quoted you or read to you the situation where you had the dream, the ladder, and Yeshua was referring to that. Um and just like the angels go up and down, we'll be able to do that too because Yeshua stated that we would be like the angels. And let me find that scripture here. We're going to be just like the angels. That means we'll have the privileges of the angels as well. And one of the privileges of the angels is to be able to be in God's presence. Matthew 22, verse 30 in the King James Version states, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. Okay, so we will have the privileges of, if the angels are going up and down, we're going to be able to go up and down. Am I making sense? Okay. Because many people think we're going to be trapped on earth. No, they're not going to be trapped on earth. And and uh, God the Father is not going to wait a thousand years later after the millennium, to see his children. Uh, that doesn't make any sense. I don't even have to ask him that. It's just common sense. All right. Now, let's get into the uh, the issue with tefillin, zit, zit, mikvah, baths, mezuzahs. I guess I'll cover a little bit of the beard if I have time, head coverings, and so forth. Again, people are making a, a, such a big deal about this, and I wish they made more of a big deal about caring about people. They would have so much light shining that they would probably evaporate everybody if they did, okay? But unfortunately, I don't know, people have a tendency to avoid the real problem. And really the real problem of humankind is our lack of caring for one another. That is the real problem. Again, 
in Genesis chapter 4, what did Cain tell God? He said, where's your brother Abel? He said, am I my brother's keeper? Well, that word keeper in original Hebrew means protector. And the entire and the Jews teach correctly that the entire Bible really is written in an attempt to ask, uh, answer that question, which is a positive yes. And and people, it's, it's I don't know, it's, it's like well I do know. I'm I'm going to try to explain this to you as as, as simple as I can. The problem with most people can be described like. You're wearing pants, right? And you have some money. But when somebody asks for it, the money is attached to crazy glue. And you, you just don't want to. You just don't want to give it. You just don't want to give that money, unless it's something that's going to benefit you. That is the way most people's attitude is when it comes to giving and sharing possessions or money or anything else. And in Matthew chapter, I think it's in chapter 6, it talks about having an evil eye. I think it's in Matthew 5 or 6, one of those chapters. It talks about having an evil eye. And an evil eye, Hebraically, means being stingy. Okay, and of course you wouldn't know that unless you studied the Hebraic background of the Bible. Let me see if I can specifically find that scripture here. It's in Matthew somewhere here. Yeah, Matthew chapter 20, it talks about, is it not lawful for me to do what I will with my own? Is that I evil because I am good? So that that's an example of uh, the evil eye. And we have to be careful not to to be that way toward one another. Yeah, Matthew chapter 6 here, verse 23 is another one. I'm reading the complete Jewish, the complete... Jewish Bible version, for clarity's sake, Matthew 6, verse 22. And I just got through talking about the lamp, right, and and how our lamp should shine. Okay, well, Matthew 6, verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body, so if you have a good eye, that is, if you are generous, that's what it means, means hebraically, generous, your whole body will be full of light, right? Matthew 6, verse 23, but if you have an evil eye, if you are stingy, being stingy means that you can give a whole lot more, but you just don't want to do it because you just want to hold up, to, hold on to your riches as much as you can. That's what being stingy means. But if you have an evil eye, if you are stingy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And here's the problem with darkness, folks. When you're dark, you're blind. You can't understand the Bible like you should be able to when you get into that situation. It's very difficult to understand the words of God when you're stingy. And then he states here in verse 24, no one can be slayed to two masters for he will either hate the first and love the second or scorn the second and be loyal to the first. You can't be a slave to both God and money and that's what the 501c3 designation when these U.S. churches uh, when they become ministries, um, 
I think in almost every case when a minister uh, gets tries to get the uh, applies for the five hundred one c three designation, he, he has money on his mind, and what you're doing basically is is putting your assembly or church under the government, and you are very limited to what you like. See, I talk about homosexuality sometime here. Uh, on the program, and I, and I talk about other things that I know that if I was a 501c3, <laughs> they wouldn't like that, and they would try to uh, prevent me from accepting contributions. Now, there's a big deception going on, thinking that you can't accept contributions unless you're 501c3. I thought that at first, but Elohim, or God, he gave me the information and knowledge through this website and through this other uh, this other uh, article that I read, PDF uh article that I downloaded. But you should go to this website. It's hushmoney.org, I think, hushmoney.org, and it'll give you all this information that you need uh, should you should you be interested in wanting to start your own assembly. Uh, you'll realize that uh, you don't need a 501c3 designation to do that. Yeah, hushmoney.org, okay? So it's hush money, H-U-S-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot org. Many people don't know this, and some people do know it and they don't care. But but I have to tell you the truth because that's what I'm all about, the truth. Okay? So let's get into this. Let's, let's look at what Yeshua stated here. And hopefully anybody who's just focusing too much on head coverings and all that, hopefully you'll, you'll believe what the Messiah is saying here and you'll change. And stop focusing on that so much. That's not what's going to get you in the kingdom wearing your head covering every day. All right, Matthew chapter 23, verse 23. Woe to you, hypocritical Torah teachers and perishing, or Pharisees. You pay your tithes of mint, dill, and cumin. Which, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. If you want to tithe that way, that's fine. But you have neglected the weightier or heavy matters of the, of the Torah, justice, mercy, trust. In the King James, it means faith. These are the things you should have attended to without neglecting the others. All right? So that's what the main focus should be, folks, of worship. Now, I'm reading from the Gill commentary, which I suggest anyone get. John Gill was a, I think he was a Baptist, but he understand he understood rather Hebraics, and he understood Hebrew, and he read many of the Jewish texts, the Mishnah, the, the Talmud, and so forth. And I refer to his commentary a lot; it really helps me. But anyway, this is what he says here about the they have omitted the weightier matters of the law. That's the way it reads in the King James says, the distinction of the commandments of the law into lighter and heavier or weightier to which Christ here refers is frequent with the Jews. When one comes to be made a proselyte or a convert, they acquaint with him some of the light commands and some of the heavy or weighty commands. So again, they the, the paraphrase the words in Isaiah 33, verse 18, where is the scribe? He that remembers all the letters in the law, where is the receiver who weighs the light things and heavy or weighty things in the law? In the words of the law, there are some things light and some things heavy or weighty. But those weighty things, they omitted and regarded those that were light. Yes, they had no foundation in the law at all. 
and no wonder, since in the place last cited, they say that the words of the scribes are all of them weighty, and and then and, and that the sayings of the elders are more weighty than the words of the prophets. Okay, and that's that's ridiculous, but that's what they thought. That's what they thought, and many, unfortunately, many of the messianic folks today think that way as well. They get into all this Hebraic stuff, and they focus too much on that. Now, this is what Gill says about ju judgment, mercy, and faith. He says, judgment may mean the administration of justice in courts, of, in courts uh, the putting and execution of good judgments, righteous laws and statutes, protecting and relieving the injured and oppressed. Protecting and relieving the injured and oppressed and doing that which is right and equitable between man and man. That's what judgment means. And then it's translated justice in the complete Jewish Bible version. In other words, doing what's right. Doing what's right. But on the contrary, these men devoured widows' houses and oppressed the poor and the fatherless. Mercy includes all acts of compassion to the distress, relieving the uh, relieving those that uh, needed help, distributing to their wants, and showing all kindness to the poor and needy, which describes in Pharisees very little practice, being a set of cruel, hard-hearted, and covetous persons. And I see that today, unfortunately, in many of the Messianic groups and Christian groups, unfortunately. But also faith in God, okay, faith may not, uh, or trust, may not only design faithfulness in a man's keeping his word and promise and fidelity to a trust reposed in him, but also faith in God as a God of providence and as a God of grace and mercy, believing in his word and promises and worshiping him, which the law requires, and a rather... This seems to be intended because Luke, instead of faith, puts the love of God, which faith includes, and works by, and is an end of the commandment arising from faith and faith. So anyway, that is is important, and that's and that's the heavy parts of the law. It says these all you have to these all you ye I'm sorry, and <laughs> the King James is messing with me. These all ye to have done more especially, and in the first place, as being of the greatest use and importance, of greater importance, and not to leave the other undone, meaning either the lighter matters and lesser commands of the law or even the ties of the herbs, if they thought themselves obliged to them. It says, but alas, these men preferred the rituals of the ceremonial law and the traditions of the elders above the duties of the moral law and reckoned that the latter was nothing, if the former were wanting. It says the words of the scribes are more lovely than the words of the law, and that's ridiculous. That's a that's a wicked Jewish tradition. <laughs> and it says right here, He that profanes the holy things and despises the solemn feast and makes void the covenant of Abraham, our father circumcised, and behaves impudently towards the law of ceremony, although the law and the good works are in his hands, he has no part in the world to come. So anyway, I'm, I'm hoping you understand what, what Christ is saying here. We've got to care about people. That's the priority here. Don't leave the other undone, but what's the important thing here? What 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 is the whole law of Moses, the law of God, should point to? It should point toward having justice, mercy, and trust, caring about people, 
and trusting in God, having faith, and having compassion on the poor, and doing what's right. Okay, Matthew chapter 23, verse 5. And we're going to talk about tefillin. These are, these are the other things here, all right? And if you use them properly, it can help you enhance your ability to have justice, mercy, and trust. Matthew chapter 23, verse 5 says, Everything they do is done to be seen by others, for they make their tefillin broad and their zit zit long. Now, many people will eisegesis this, put their own thoughts into the scripture, and state that, well, oh, Yeshua was against tefillin and zit zit. No, he wasn't. He was talking about the tefillin being too broad and their zit zit too long. He didn't say that it was wrong for them to do it. All right? And in Matthew chapter 9, Verse 20 states this. It says, A woman who had had a hemorrhage for 12 years approached him from behind and touched the zit zit on his robe. So Yeshua wore a zit zit. And I think in uh, the King James, uh, it says fringes. And touched the hem of his garment. So anyway, hem of the garment. Yes, it's, it's a fringe. So he actually wore a fringe. So Yeshua wore zitzit. And then uh, Matthew 14, verse 36. They begged him that the sick people might only touch the zit zit on his robe, and all who touched it were completely healed. All right, so it's obvious, and it's other scriptures too, Mark 6, verse 56, if you want to look it up, and Luke 8, verse 44. He wore zit zit. So our Lord and Savior wore zit zit. Tefillin. In all likelihood, he wore tefillin as well. Um, what scripture is tefillin based on? Well, let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 8. It's in a complete Jewish Bible version. Deuteronomy 6, verse 8. Tie them on your hand as a sign. Put them at the front of a headband around your forehead. So that's that's what he's talking about there as far as tefillin is concerned. In Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 18. Deuteronomy 11, verse 18. Therefore, you are to store up these words of mine in your heart and all your being. Tie them on your hand as a sign. Put them at the front of a headband around your forehead. So this is where the Jews get the idea of the tefillin. And what is a tefillin? I'm going to simplify this. I don't want to make this complicated. Uh, tefillin are letter boxes that are strapped to the forehead and to the head. So that's where Jews got the idea of this, And it's a good tradition. I mean, if you need to do this to help you remember that you must take the words of God seriously, do it. <laughs> do it. There's nothing wrong with it. But don't make it, don't get wrapped up in it so much that you forget about taking care of people that are in need, that you forget about doing what's right, that you forget about mercy, having compassion, that you forget about having faith and trust in God. 
right, Zitzi, where do we get that? And we know that Yeshua wore Zitzi, so where do we get that from? Let's turn to Numbers chapter 15. Numbers chapter 15, starting in verse 37. Adonai said to Moshe, this is in the complete Jewish Bible version, Speak to the people of Israel, instructing them to make, through all their generations, zit zit, on the corners of their garments, and to put with the zit zit on each corner a blue thread. It is to be a zit zit for you to look at and thereby remember all of Adonai's mitzvah, which means commandments or commands, and obey them so that you won't go around wherever your heart, own heart so that you won't go around wherever your own heart and eyes lead you to prostitute yourselves. But it will help you remember and obey all my mitzvah and be holy for your God. Okay, so the zit zit, when it's worn properly, helps us to do what he said here, to, to help us remember and obey all the mitzvah. Now, a Jewish tradition, there's a Jewish tradition the way it's uh, done here. Let me... Read this because it's pretty interesting here. I'm reading this from God's Appointed Customs by Barney Kasdan. It's a Messianic Jewish guide to the biblical lifestyle, or life cycle rather, and lifestyle. And this is on page 124. So I'm going to read this on this page here. It says, The command to wear fringes is directly from God. Fringes is another name for Zit Zit. He wanted Israel to be constantly reminded that they were a distinct people set apart for service to the one true God. Therefore, the holy days, worship style, and diet reflected spiritual truth. Even the clothing of the Jew reminded him, or I would say Israel, reminded him of his special calling. The Zitzit fringe, fringe garment, or tassel, was a clear marker in the world that Israel or Israel had a God-ordained mission. The biblical command is clear. Israel was told to wear the Zitzit, plural, or Zitzit, or plural, or Zitzit, on the corners of their outer garments. Jewish tradition adds many additional details concerning the essence and use of the Zitzit. Zitziat. The construction of the fringes has a special tradition and significance. Each corner of the outer garment was to have one long thread that was dyed a special shade of blue, a reminder of the sky and Israel's heavenly focus. So when you look at that blue, because I have a tallit, which I'm going to describe shortly here, and I do have fringes, and the blue represents the heavenly sky, or it represents the heavens. This long thread was connected to three shorter threads, making a total of four threads for each corner of the garment. These fringes were tied in such a manner so as to double them so that they would total eight strands. These strands were tied in a series of five double knots that symbolically represent the number 13. Interestingly, by adding this number to the numerical value in Hebrew of the word zitzit, 601 arrives at a total of 613. This is the number of commandments contained in the Torah according to Jewish tradition. Hence, the purpose of the Zizyat are clearly fulfilled each time they remind a traditional Jew or someone who is a believer to follow all of God's commandments. All right? So that's where we get that from. And it's interesting, too, that he says, um, in the King James Version, it says a whoring, and that word means is to commit adultery, to commit idolatry. 
Okay? So what's interesting with, let me look in the word study dictionary. It says a verb meaning to fornicate, to prostitute. So zona, that's the Hebrew for whoring in the context of zitzit, means that you would wear the zitzit to remind you not to, to go whoring or to fornicate. And so when you don't keep this commandment, and if you have issues with that, because many men do, that's for sure, and I think women too, they look at pornography, and according to the scriptures, uh, this, this, uh, hold your place here, I'm going to turn to Matthew chapter 5 here. Matthew chapter 5. Verse 27. It says, You have heard that it was said of them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever look on a woman to lust after her have already committed adultery with her already in his mind or heart. Okay? So that our Lord and Savior is telling us that by looking at pornography, and don't you dare tell me that looking at pornography doesn't cause you to want to lust after a woman or a man, okay? That's adultery. That's Yeshua's definition of adultery, folks. Okay, so let's let's make it simple and sweet, all right? And the seat helps you not to think about that. It reminds you, hey, wait a minute, I shouldn't be whoring. I shouldn't be having these fornication or, or idolatry thoughts in my mind. Because that's what it also means when I... Looked at this word. Let me go back here. Yeah. Zona, the verb meaning to fornicate, to prostitute, is typically used for women and only twice in reference to men. The verb occurs in connection with prostitution. Figuratively, Israel's improper relations with other nations or other gods. As a metaphor, it describes Israel's breach of the Lord's covenant relationship. So it can mean, it could talk about physical, fornication, and spiritual, both, both. So it's very important to wear the seat. See, I have a tallit, and I have have uh, the seat attached to the tallit, and I'm going to get into that here shortly, but I do wear it, especially on a Shabbat, especially when I'm around people. I'm going to wear it tomorrow. Um, uh, when I'm around people, uh, I do wear it occasionally when I'm doing I should wear it all the time when I do Bible study. But I wear it because it, it helps me to understand that I must keep all the commandments of God to the best of my ability. It's a good tradition. Well, actually, it's not a tradition. It's a commandment here. Okay. So, now let's get to the to, the tallit, as I was just describing here. Um, now, this became, uh, let me just read it here. Says the custom on page 125 of this book, uh, which is God's appointed customs, a messianic Jewish guide to the biblical lifestyle and life cycle and lifestyle by Barney Kaysden. All right. Says the custom of zitziat, which is the plural form of zitzi, is still followed today by traditional Jews with some slight modifications from the biblical command. The most obvious adaptation, adaptation for most Jews is that the zitziat are not worn as a part of the regular garments. Instead of the tassels on the corners of the tunic or outer garment, Jewish tradition developed the custom of the tallit. This is special garment is usually worn in synagogue 
and I'm going to talk about the Jewish synagogue some other time because that's where we got the concept of all our churches. Most people don't know that. But anyway, uh, this special garment is usually worn in synagogue or during special worship occasions. It contains the same series of fringes and knots on its four corners and is often embroidered, which in other words, embroidery is sewing a design on a specific type of clothing, a shirt, pants, whatever, okay, with Judaic artwork. Now, I know mine, uh, my middle name is Levi or Levi, and I have Levi um, stitched on my tallit. And then I'm going to give a plug for this particular woman that actually did it for me. Uh, she does sell tallits and other holy clothes so or set-apart clothes. So go to her website, uh, support, Zippor's Thimble. Just uh, go ahead and do a search on uh, Google. And I'm sure she'll appreciate uh, you giving her some business. But anyway, do that after Shabbat, by the way. All right, anyway, this uh, the, the tallit, this special garment is usually worn in synagogue or during special worship occasions. It contains the same series of fringes and knots on its four corners and is often embroidered with Judaic artwork. This biblical custom underwent some changes, most notably during the Middle Ages when Jews were scattered throughout the Gentile world. Wearing the fringes on their personal garments would have meant sub subjecting themselves to persecution and danger. Therefore, the custom was modified so that the fringes were mainly worn in the synagogue. All right, so that's how the Talit, the origin of the Talit, came about. It came through persecution. So, that is the Talit. Now, we're going to go over the mikvah. Many of you probably don't know what mikvah is. Uh, well, mikvah is baptism. Baptism means immersion. And Israel, ancient Israel, was doing that many years before uh, Yochanan, the immerser, came on the scene, uh, John the Baptist, and did it. And let's go to uh, Matthew chapter 3. This in the complete Jewish Bible version here, starting at verse 13. It says, Then Yeshua came from Galilee to the garden to be immersed by Yochanan. But Yochanan tried to stop him. You are coming to me. I thought I ought to be immersed by you or baptized by you. Verse 15. However, Yeshua answered him, Let it be this way now because we should do everything righteousness requires. Then Yochanan led him. As soon as Yeshua had been immersed, he came out of the water, and at that moment, Heaven was open. He saw the Spirit of God coming down upon him as a dove, which is a symbol of peace. Verse 17, And the voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. I am well pleased with him. Okay, so that's an example of immersion. And, of course, we should walk as he walked, as John 1, 1 John 2, verse 6 states. And this is one of the things that he did, so we should follow his example. And that's why he did it, to be an example. Uh, Mark chapter 16, verse 16. Whoever trusts and is immersed will be saved. Whoever does not trust will be condemned. Now, you must get at least immersed one time, acknowledging that the Messiah is your Lord and Savior. So this is a requirement. But if you want to get immersed over and over and over again, that's up to you, because that, that's what the Jews did, and it's nothing wrong. They do it today. 
they have mikvah baths today. And what does the mikvah represent? It, it, immersion is just one of the Washington purification rituals. And by the way, Leviticus chapter 15 and many other cha- chapters in that book shows you that even the priests, they, they bathe themselves and and uh, women bathe themselves and men bathe themselves. Uh, the water symbolizes the Holy Spirit, cleansing yourself. So whenever you wash yourself physically, think of washing yourself spiritually through the Holy Spirit. That's what the physical washings represent. Anyway, the immersion of mikvah ceremony symbolizes the cleansing of your mind. All right, I'm going to quote a scripture, too, to help you understand that. God is more concerned, I mean, sure, clean your body, okay? But he's more concerned about your mind being cleansed, okay? Remember that scripture about what really defiles the man? It's not really food that so much God is concerned, even though he is concerned about you defiling your body. He's much more concerned about you defiling your mind and how you think, all right? That's what he's concerned about, even though you should not leave the other undone, okay? But, um... Again, I just want to, because this is very important for you to understand this, the immersion of, or mikvah ceremony symbolizes the cleansing of your mind. And that even Jews understand this, despite the fact that they don't understand that Yeshua is the Messiah. They do understand the purpose of the mikvah bath. And for those who want to really get in deep into this, I recommend you go to Chabad, www.c as in cat, H-A-B as in boy, A-D as in dog, .org, and they really do a good job in explaining all these things in further detail. And I'm designing this program for people who have never heard this before so that you understand it. And I'm just breaking it down as simply as I can. All right. Um, Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. It says, Yeshua came and talked with them. He said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given me. And then verse 19. Therefore, go and make people from all nations into Talmudim, or disciples, immersing them into the reality of the Father, the Son, and the Rock, Reich HaKadish, or the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I will be with you always, yes, even until the end of the age, for those who think that uh, at any part in the history of uh, Christianity or I would like to better call Believianity or <laughs> Yeshuaitism or whatever, you know, those who were believing in Yeshua. If you ever think that there weren't any believers up until this time, you're wrong because he states here, I will be with you always, yes, even until the end of the age. So that's a prophecy to let you know that there will always be people that like the Talmudim here, the original disciples of Yeshua, that could understand the Bible. Because I'd get some people saying, well, you can't understand the Bible. It's confusion. Well, you're calling him a liar because he says that I will be with you. Who? His Talmudim, his, his students. Okay? Until the end of the age. That proves that there will be people always, a few, that will understand the Bible. Am I making sense? Okay. All right. Just, just checking. All right, Acts chapter 2, verse 41. And see, this is when, again, the weightier or heavy matters of the law, faith, trust. Do you believe that statement? Do you actually believe 
that there have been believers. See, that's the heavy, man. We focus too much on the head coverings and all that, but we got to focus on, on, on the weightier matters, the important matters of the law. Okay? I'm trying to simplify this. It's probably maybe one of the most important Bible studies I've ever given. And I'm trying to 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 simplify this. It took me almost two and a half hours to prepare for this Bible study, to break it down so that a little child can understand it. And I hope you appreciate it. This is a lot of hard work here. Acts chapter 2, verse 41. Now, another proof that many people immersed or were baptized back then. So those who accepted what he said and what was said, well, what um, Peter was saying, and it motivated them to be immersed here. So those who accepted what he said were immersed, and there were added to the group that day about 3,000 people. 3,000 people. Now, how can all those people be baptized like that? Well, going to John Gill again in his Hebraic background. It says, we're baptized in water by immersion for which there was great conveniency in Jerusalem and in the temple where the apostles now were. In the city of Jerusalem, in private houses, they had their baths for purifications by immersion, as in the case of uh, menstruous and, and all other defilements by touching unclean persons and things which were very frequent so that a digger a D, as in dog, I-G-G-E-R, of cisterns for, for such uses and others was a business in Jerusalem. So, uh, in other words, what he's saying is that they had many, many different types of uh, mikvah baths. And they had, uh, obviously they had 3,000 for them all to be immersed that day. And if you are fortunate enough to go to a Jewish synagogue, Many of them have a mikvah area, and and they and they go and have mikvah baths. Now, First Peter chapter three, and it's something that you know if you feel you've been a bad boy or girl, uh, things aren't going right in your life. Uh, you know, fast, pray to Yahweh, and go to a Jewish synagogue if you have access to a messianic synagogue or if a friendly Orthodox Jew or a Reformed Jew or whatever, a synagogue, go there if they allow you to and do a mikvah bath. And then when you come up, of course, uh, the Bible says you're a new person, right? And, and it's, it's a good habit to practice, to get your, your focus on what's really important. First Peter chapter 3, verse 21. Now, he's talking about when Noah... And the and the and this is interesting. Uh, verse. Uh, let me just go back. First Peter three verse twenty. Because Noah, in a sense, was baptized or immersed, right? To those who were disobedient long ago in the days of Noah, when God waited patiently during the building of the ark, in which a few people, to be specific, eight were delivered by means of water. Verse twenty one of First Peter chapter three. This also prefigures what delivers us now: the water of immersion, which is not the removal of dirt from the body but one's pledge to keep a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of the Messiah, Yeshua. Okay? So that's what the mikvah bath or the immersion, or what Christians call today baptism, represents. 
And the way you should get baptized is through running water like a lake, or the way the Jews have constructed it is, is through running water as well. Any other baptism like that is not really considered a valid immersion, even though for those who are ignorant of that, I'm sure that God uh, will overlook that because it wasn't revealed to them. But once you are revealed on the proper way to be immersed, you should get immersed properly. You should get immersed properly. Now, in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 2, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 2. And I'm going to do another Bible study. I think uh, this probably will, I probably will write a book or a uh, booklet on the basic doctrines of Elohim. Because this is not, I don't think this is being taught at all. And it needs to be taught because you have people that get in Hebraics and they don't understand the basics. And yet here they are trying to understand meat when they're not even drinking the milk. And this is the milk, folks, right here. Hebrews 6, verse 1. Therefore, leaving behind the initial lessons about the Messiah, let us go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of turning from works that lead to death, which is dead works. That's the first basic doctrine of God, which is the, the one that we probably fail the most in. And then here's another one, trusting God. That's one of the heavy matters of the law, right? Dead work, uh, not having dead works, in other words, having live works, is a part of justice and mercy. It's part of the heavy matters of the law. Verse 2, an instruction about washings. Instruction about washings. Es mikha, the resurrection of the dead and eternal punishment. And that is all the um, doctrines of, of Elohim here. Let me Use the assistance of Mr. David Stern again because he explains this beautifully. He's a Messianic Jew and he wrote a commentary that I suggest everyone get. It's called the Jewish New Testament Commentary by David H. Stern. He lives in uh, Jerusalem. And Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1. And this is his commentary on this, on the uh, basic doctrines of, of the Messiah or Yahweh, or Elohim. The initial lessons about the Messiah can be presented as three pairs of doctrines um, which consists of the foundation on which to build messianic life. Being born again consists in turning from works that lead to death, repentance from sin, and trusting God. Okay, and what I wanted to get here is he talks about the uh, the immersion. It's the Greek baptismon in the normal New Testament word, not for immersion, which accompanies coming to faith, but for washings or purifications. That word translated baptism should be washings, of which the initial immersion is but one. So there's many other washings. The Messianic Jewish readers would have been familiar with this subject since the Tanakh speaks of such purification at many places. Also in John 13, verse 3 to 6, I mean John verse 13, verse 3 to 17. And the Esmikha, that is referring to the laying on of hands. And it also refers to ordination of an individual for a particular tasks of ministry by the elders of a congregation. And to the S. Mikvah introduces the subject of working for the kingdom of God. And then the resurrection of the dead, it becomes unclear how God is just. And eternal punishment are powerful motivators for believers to live holy lives. So eternal punishment or 
and then I think uh, in other translations it says eternal judgment. Those are all the main or the foundational doctrines of Elohim. And I know that those aren't being, are they being taught, Sheree? Uh, Definitely not being taught. And you can see the heavy matters of of the law and all of that, really. When you, when, you, when you look at justice, doing the right thing, mercy, having compassion on the poor, and trust, just trusting what, what he says. I see a lack of that in, uh, among many, well, not many, but quite a few of the Messianic and, and Christian uh, assemblies. It's sad, but true. Okay, so Hebrews chapter 9, verse 8. By this arrangement, the Rock HaKadish, or the Holy Spirit, showed that so long as the first tent had standing, it's talking about the um, the tabernacle in the days of Moshe, the way into the holy place was still closed. This symbolizes the present age and indicates that the conscience of the person performing the service cannot be bought to the goal by the gifts and sacrifices he offers. So you have two. You have the holy place and the, and the most holy place. The most holy place represents heaven where God dwells where his uh, throne room is at in heaven the holy place not the most holy place but the holy place represents the earth where the priests uh, reside and prepare to do the work of the temple alright and it also represents the old agreement the most holy place represents the new agreement the new agreement to what to keep the Torah or the teachings of God. Think of the most holy place as having the Holy Spirit in you and that Holy Spirit writing the laws in your mind and think of the holy place as just the the commandments written on stone. That's the dichotomy. As the verse says, this symbolizes the present age, the holiest place, and indicates that the conscience of the person, or the holy place rather, um, service cannot be bought to the gold by the gifts and sacrifices he offers for they involve only food and drink and various ceremonial washings which I just discussed in reference to the mikvah and you have other ceremonial washings that are discussed uh, a few of them discussed in Leviticus chapter 15 and of course the priests had ceremonial washings as well regulations concerning the outward life imposed until the time for God to reshape the whole structure verse 11 but when the Messiah appeared as Cohen or priest or high priest of the good things that are happening already, then through the greater and more perfect tent, which is not man-made, that is, not of the created world, he entered the holiest place, that's the most holy place, once and for all, and he entered not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus setting people free forever. Not free to the sin, but free from the curse of death. Verse 13. For if sprinkling ceremonially unclean persons with the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of the heifer restores their outward purity, in other words, their physicality, their their physical being, it purifies, but it doesn't purify the mind. Verse 14, then how much more the blood of the Messiah, who through the eternal spirit offered himself to God as a sacrifice without blemish, will purify our conscience from works that lead to death. So why? So that we can serve the living God. 
So his sacrifice was not only to, uh, to erase the death penalty that we all deserve, it's also worked or supposed to work as a catalyst to help us to learn how to keep the commandments, to give us the ability to keep the commandments through the Holy Spirit. And that, I know, is not being taught by hardly anyone. Okay, so I hope you understand what the mikvah is all about. Okay? Now, the mezuzah. What is a mezuzah, zuzah? <laughs> all right, um, let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 9. And there's many other Jewish traditions. I'm going over the most popular ones, all right? And then I'm going to really, really get at the, the head-covering issue at the uh, the final of this program, the finale of this program, okay? For good reason, as you're going to see here. Um, at least I hope you do. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 9. So, in the context of this scripture, um, Moses is telling the people, God told them to tell them uh, to write the commandments on the door frames of your house and on your gates. So that's where Jews get this tradition from, or this commandment, I mean, the way they interpret the commandment is to, uh, for the mezuzah, and I'm going to explain what the mezuzah is in a minute based on these scriptures, but Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 20. It says, and write them on the door frames of your house and on your gates. Okay, here's that commandment again. So what is a mezuzah? It's a small container or box attached to the doorpost. The mezuzah is the parchment, which is a strong, tough paper. That's what parchment is. Containing the Hebrew scriptures. The box is the ceremonial container. The whole container, including the parchment, is called a mezuzah. Now, what does the mezuzah do? It reminds us of the commandments or the mitzvah or the commandments of Elohim every time we pass by it. It also should remind us that Elohim protects us by the power of his word. So that's what the mezuzah does. It's supposed to help us, uh, and we should put it on our in a, in a home and so forth. And we should do that. It's a good tradition. So that's pretty simple there. There's not, not really too much else uh, to talk about there, about the mezuzah, if you want more information about that. Again, go to Chabad.org, or you can get this book, God's Appointed Customs, A Messianic Jewish Guide to the Biblical Life Cycle and Lifestyle by Barney Kasten. This is, again, a Bible study of simplicity. I'm not trying to go into detail, trying to show you how much knowledge I know or how much I know and all that. You know, that's not the purpose of teaching. The purpose of teaching is to break things down so anyone can understand. I saved the best for last. Head coverings. There's some women in the Messianic, uh, I'm not going to give names, but uh, there's some women uh, that are really going around here incorrectly teaching that head coverings is so important. If you don't wear hair coverings, then there's something wrong with you. Didn't you get that impression? It's like if you don't wear hair coverings, <gasps> well, what is, we have to always go back to what Elohim says in his words, okay? Now, let's, let's go over a foundational scripture here. Ephesians chapter 2. 
verse 20. That's in verse 19. Ephesians 2, verse 19. Okay, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. In the complete Jewish Bible version, it says, So then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. On the contrary, you are fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's family. Verse 20. You have been built on the foundation of the missionaries, which is Hebrew for apostles and the prophets, with the cornerstone being Yeshua the Messiah himself. So I, I read this uh, for people who are just listening to me for the first time. You understand that the apostles represent the New Testament. It should be called the Renewed Covenant uh, scriptures. And the prophets, because most of the Old Testament was written by prophets. The first five books was written by a prophet, Moses. The Old Testament, or what Jews correctly called the Tanakh. So that is the foundation of the assembly, folks. And when we get away from that, we start to, to mess up. All right? Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 has been controversial. I don't know why. It's pretty clear when you read it that the covering, it could refer to a veil, but also when you read the, the interpretation of the, of the covering, it's talking about hair. All right? And it's pretty plain there. And it's just amazing that women are just making a big deal. Some women are making a big deal out of this. Like, if you don't wear a head covering, ooh, well, I'm going to show you that God doesn't make a big deal about it. I'm going to show you out of the Bible he doesn't make a big deal out of it. Now, it is true that women in the past, before the world wars, World War One and Two, traditionally wore head coverings. Not only religious women, but women around the world did it, even during the first century. Okay, so that's, that's true. That's true. But the question is, is it a sin for a woman not to wear a head covering? Because you have women going around right now in the messianic groups implying that it is a sin. And I don't see anywhere in the Torah where it says a woman should wear a head covering. Show that to me. Show that to me. Any commandment, even in the apostolic scriptures, I don't see a commandment that a woman must wear a head covering or else she's going to be thrown in the lake of fire. Show that to me. And then I'll shut up. I don't see it anywhere. I don't. Uh, on the contrary, I see scriptures where it states that that's not the focus. And I'm going to prove that to you in a minute. But anyway, let's. Uh, I'm going to try to summarize this. We've got 36 minutes, so I have plenty of time here. So, First Corinthians chapter 11. I have to go through this because it, it, the people are just really making a big deal out of this, and, and and it's just ridiculous. Particularly the women, and some men are making a big deal out of it too. First uh, Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Try to imitate me even as I myself try to imitate the Messiah. Verse 2. Now I praise you because you have remembered everything I told you and observed the traditions just the way I pass them on to you. So here we go with traditions. Some traditions are good. Some traditions are bad. And if you understand the background here, uh, a woman was considered a prostitute if they wore short hair. All right? And 
certain men were wearing pagan things over their head. And then also, um, when you understand this, of course, when a, when a man wears long hair, unless it's because of a Nazarite vow, that's not right for a man to do that because that's unnatural. Verse 3. Now, this tells you what the context of this whole chapter is about. I mean, up, up, up until verse 16, what it's about. It's about authority, which women have a problem with today. I have to say it because Elohim says it in Isaiah chapter 3, verse 12, which you're going to read today. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is the Messiah. Now, everybody understands that pretty clearly, right? Yeah, the head of every man is the Messiah, right? Okay. Now, this is when we start to get into problems, okay? This is when women say, wait a minute, uh, Rosie the Riveter, um, if you don't know who Rosie the Riveter is, that, that's a, if you just type that on the Internet, that was something I think the government conjured up or somebody did to emphasize that women are working like men now. And, you know, she, if you look at the picture, she's making a muscle, and she looks like a man, don't she? Looks somewhat like a man. She looks masculine. It's an abomination. But anyway, and the head of a wife, is her husband. That's a plain scripture, women. Head of the wife is the husband. And is, and is making an analogy that just like the Messiah is the head of every man, the head of every wife is her husband. Okay? Just like the Messiah is the head of us all, right? And the head of the Messiah is God. So it's talking about authority, governmental structure. That is the context of this. All right? Verse 4, every man who prays or prophesies wearing something down over his head brings shame to his head. Now, let's read what a Messianic Jew who's, who has a doctorate degree, uh, in, I think it's in economics, but he's intelligent. I think he also has some master's degrees in uh, theology, so he's qualified here. Let's look at what he says here about this. Stop all this monkey business. Cause I, you know, I'm angry about this. You know, This is ridiculous. All this silly stuff. All right, verse 4. Every man who prays in public worship meetings or prophesies, wearing something down over his head. This is the, the literal translation. So he ought to know. He's a Jew, all right? And he says this is the literal translation. Wearing something down over his head. And it is used here to show that Shaul, or Paul, is talking about wearing a veil, not a hat. The usual translation, with his head covered, obscures this fact, and as a result, an issue has arisen in Messianic Judaism that should never have come up at all, namely, whether it is proper for a Messianic Jewish man to wear a kippah, skull cap, or in Yiddish, uh, yarmulke, in public worship. Of course, it is proper, since objection to it is based only on a mistranslation of this verse. So anyway, it's okay to do, and also the priests wore something over their head and so forth and prayed, all right? So, that, you know, I was with a group, and they were contemplating that maybe a man shouldn't wear something over his head while he prays. Well, that that's not what it's talking about here, all right? All right, so let's read the rest of this. Verse 5. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head unveiled brings shame to her head. There is no difference between her and a woman who has had her head shaved. And I told you that women that shaved their hair back then were considered prostitutes. Okay? Verse 6, For if a woman is not veiled, let her also have her hair cut short. But if it is shameful for a woman to wear her hair cut short or to have her head shaved, then let her be veiled. 
For a man indeed should not have his head veiled, because he is the image and glory of God. And see, he translated this. This is not a word-from-word translation. Let me switch over to another one here so we get the, the clear understanding of this. Actually, let me, uh, okay. The new, the new American Standard Bible Version. It says, every man who has something on his head while praying or prostrating disgraces his head, but every woman who has her head uncovered, that's the translation I want to look at here, uncovered. And let me look at that, look up at that word here. Yeah, it means unveiled, uncovered, okay. While praying or prostrating disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as a woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But it is a disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved and let her and let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but a woman from man. For indeed man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. That's a pretty plain statement there. Verse 10, Therefore the woman ought to have a symbol of authority over her head. Here we go again. The context of this is authority. Because of the angels. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Now, this is the interpretation of this. And I don't know, I, don't know, I, I see this pretty clearly here. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 14. Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? That's what the interpretation is of this covering and uncovering. It has something to do with having short hair or long hair. Okay? Verse 15. But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Is that clear, Cherie? 1 Corinthians 11, verse 15 tells you what covering means. The Bible interprets itself. That's one of the things I learned from Mr. Armstrong. And he was right, even though he didn't go by that all the time himself. But this scripture, let me see what it says in, yeah, in the complete Jewish Bible version, it says the same thing. But a woman who wears her hair long enhances her appearance because her hair has been given to her as a covering. That's what it's talking about. That's what the covering is. And I agree with Mr. Tim Hick. He has the proper interpretation. I, we agree on the same thing. That the covering is talking about hair, not a veil. Even though it can be understood as a veil, but the main understanding of this, of course, based on the Bible interpretation, is verse 15. For a woman who wears her hair long enhances her appearance because her hair has been given to her as a covering. And then verse 16 is a part of this. However, if anyone wants to argue about it, the fact remains that we have no such custom. (laughs) Nor do the Messianic communities of God. And people today are arguing about this stupid thing. And in verse 16, it says, however, if anyone wants to argue about it, the fact remains that we have no such custom, nor do the messianic communities of God. 
So we shouldn't be arguing about this. And yet we are arguing about it. And in verse 14, doesn't the nature of things itself teach you that a man who wears his hair long degrades himself? That's what it's talking about in verse 4 here. When it says, every man who prays or prophesies wearing something down over his head brings shame to his head. Now, I can refer to a veil, but it's also referring to a man wearing long hair. Do you see that, Sheree? It's pretty plain to me. But see, when you got your mind focused on head coverings and not the weightier matters of the law, you're not going to understand the scriptures. You're going to be full of darkness. You're not going to understand or have some darkness, and you're not going to understand these scriptures. But you think you do. But there's a lot of people that think they're right, but they're not right. It's like there's a lot of people that deny facts, but it doesn't mean it's not a fact. You can deny all you want, deny, 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 but it doesn't mean that it's not a fact. So, I hope you understand that. I tried to explain it as simple as I can. Okay. Now, for biblical proof that women did wear, wear veils, over their head, there, there's there's some biblical proof. Let's go to Genesis chapter 24, verse 58. They called Rivka and asked her, will you go with this man? And she replied, I will. Wait a minute. Wrong scripture. I hate when I do this. Let's see. 24. Okay, wait a minute. Let me see. Well, actually, I guess he doesn't have that. Hmm. Let me see. All right, 24 verse 58. All right, let me type in the word veil. I had this. I must have just written it down wrong here. I'll find it here. But there there is scriptural evidence here. Just be patient with me here. Here we go. Oops, wrong version. All right, I have another scripture here that I can throw at you here. Uh, it's um, Numbers chapter 5, verse 18. That's the scripture that some women are using to say, hey, uh, there was a head covering. Well, we know there were head coverings. That's not the issue here. Uh, complete Jewish Bible version here says, the Kohen will place the woman before Adonai, unbind the woman's hair. So the unbind the woman's hair, obviously she was wearing a hair covering. And put the grain offering for remembering in her hands. And so they, they use the scripture correctly to state that there were hair coverings. I mean, that's, that's you know, I'm, I'm not denying that. No one's denying that uh, that they were wearing hair coverings. So that's that's not an issue there for me. So let me see here. I'm trying to find the veil thing again here. Here we go. Genesis 24, verse 65. 
I misquoted that scripture. And that happens sometimes. All right, so Genesis 24, verse 65, and Rivka, or Rebecca, she said to the servant, Who is this man walking in the field to meet us? When the servant replied, Is my master. She took her veil and covered herself. Okay, so some people say she covered her body, but in all indications, more likely she covered her head with a veil. Okay? So there is scriptural evidence and historic evidence that women, not only the women of Israel, but also women worldwide, it was a custom that they did cover their head. And then until recently, when we started getting into feminism and everything else, uh, women started to get arrogant and wanted to rule over men and so forth, and uh, uh, they stopped acting humble. Now, uh, I'm sure Eve did not have a head covering when she was created, right? <laughs> I don't see anywhere where it says that, that Eve, when she was created, she had a head covering. So let's be let's use our common sense. Obviously, head covering is not a necessary requirement to enter the kingdom of God. And for people that are teaching that, you're teaching false doctrine, and I hope you stop it and stop uh, stop the foolishness, okay? Because that's what it is. All right, First um, Peter chapter three, verse one to six. This is where the focus should be on. First Peter chapter uh, three, verse one. Now, when you read. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, toward the latter half of it, is talking about how Yeshua uh, didn't talk back, he was humble and all that, where he's saying that in the same way, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, in the same way, wives, submit to your husbands, so that even if some of them do not believe the word, they will be won over by conduct, by how you act, without your saying anything. Verse 2, as they see your respectful and pure behavior, Verse 3, your beauty should not consist in externals, such as fancy hairstyles, gold jewelry, or what you wear. And let me remind you that a head covering is considered clothes, right? Right? So he's saying here that, under the inspiration of Elohim, that your beauty, a woman's beauty, should not consist in externals, which is a head covering too, such as fancy hairstyles, gold jewelry, or what you wear. Verse 4, rather let it be the inner character of your heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. In God's sight, this is of great value. Verse 5, this is how the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They focused more on their inner character, not head coverings, even though they wore head coverings. But that wasn't the focus, all right? And he says, this is how they adorn themselves, using an analogy here, and submit to their husbands. And he gives an example of Sarah, the way Sarah obeyed Abraham, honoring him as her Lord, which is translated in the Greek, Master. You are her daughters if, condition, if you do what is right. That is a part of justice, right? One of the heavy matters of the law, right? And do not succumb to fear. Fear is the antithesis of trust or faith. Okay? You have to believe in God. So right there you can see the focus is not so much on head coverings as many women or 
a significant amount of women in the messianic groups are teaching incorrectly. Okay, First uh, Timothy chapter two, verse nine and ten. Let's let's show let's see how God inspired Shaul or Paul to say how women should act and what they should be doing. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 9. Likewise, the women, when they pray, should be dressed modestly and sensibly in respectable attire, not with elaborate hairstyles. Here we go, focusing on hairstyles. And gold jewelry or pearls or expensive clothes. Rather, they should adorn themselves with what is appropriate for women who claim to be worshiping God. Namely, good deeds. Does it say head coverings? Does it say head coverings? Okay. It says in verse 10 of First Timothy chapter 2, Rather they should adorn themselves, clothe themselves with what is appropriate for women who claim to be worshiping God. Worshiping God involves what? Good deeds. Good deeds. That's what women should be focusing on. Not so much head coverings. They should focus on good deeds. Now, if wearing a head covering is going to help you do more good deeds, wear the head covering. The head covering is not the the means to to give. It should just remind you to do that. But God is more concerned about what's inside of your brains, not the externities. I hope that's do you see that? And you see that they're teaching that wrong now? I mean that's totally way off track, okay? Okay. Titus, chapter 2, verse 3 to 5. Now, this is admonition to older women or women who feel they're mature or want to be mature. Titus, chapter 2, verse 3. Likewise, tell the older women to behave the way people leading a holy life should. They shouldn't be slanderers or slaves to excessive drinking. They should teach what is good, verse 4, thus training the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to take good care of their homes and submit to their husbands, uh, to be under that authority. In this way, God's message will not be brought into disgrace. And unfortunately, when we were around these certain folks, they were disgracing God's message. I mean, you had this one woman, she had a head covering on. Oh, I got a head covering. I, I got to act like a man now because I have a head covering. I got to order people around. Head covering gives me authority. <laughs> you know, and that and that's that's what we saw, right, Sheree? You know? And the head covering it should, it should humble you. That's what it should do. Not make you act like, hmm, Deborah was a judge. I can be a judge too. No, no, the head covering doesn't do that for you. It's not supposed to do that. Isaiah chapter three. Isaiah chapter 3, starting in verse 12. Okay, we're going to get God's uh, 
pure opinion about hair coverings or veils, how he feels about it when there's wickedness around, okay? Isaiah chapter 3, verse 2. I know this is not a popular scripture for a lot of women, but this is in the Bible, so if you have a problem with this, you go argue with God about it, okay? He prophesied this uh, through the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 3, verse 12. My people, children oppress them, and women are ruling over them. My people, your guides lead you astray and obliterate the paths you should follow. So he's this women, children oppressing and women ruling is in a negative uh, context here. All right. Verse 13. Adonai rises to accuse. He stands to judge the peoples. Adonai presents the indictment against the leaders and officers of his people. It was it was that, that way back then. It's that way definitely today. This is a prophecy. Remember, the assemblies are built on the foundation of the missionaries, the apostles, and the prophets. Isaiah is a major prophet. And this is occurring today as I'm speaking in United States society and in other Western societies. Women are having more power. They're ruling. And they're not ruling, most of them, correctly. Verse 14. Adonai presents the indictment against the leaders and officers of the people, not to say that the men are ruling greatly either. They're both not ruling uh, greatly. Anyway, Adonai presents the indictment against the leaders and officers of his people. It is you who devoured the vineyard, and your houses is plundered, taken from the poor. Here we go again with the emphasis on the poor. Verse 15, what do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the faces of the poor? It says Adonai Elohim Zavad, and this is happening as I'm speaking. Verse 16, moreover, Adonai says, because Zion's women are so proud, and we are, aren't we? And Zion is talking about women in Jerusalem, in the Jerusalem area in the West Bank. But also, remember, the ten tribes were located there. So it's also talking about the rest of Israel, too, because I hear uh, I've, people have said that Israel is like America. Israel is like America. The women are like Americans, American women. So the women are so proud, walking with their heads in the air and throwing seductive glances. It sounds like an American woman, doesn't it? <laughs> seductive glances. Walking with their heads in the air. You see those commercials with the models and had their heads in the air, right? Moving with mincing steps and jingling their ankles. Anklets, right? Adonai will strike the crown of the head the crown of the heads of the Zion's woman with swords. And Adonai will expose their private parts. On that day, Adonai will take away their finery, their anklets, their medallions, their crescents, their pendants, their braces, and veils, head coverings, their headbands, armlets, sashes, perfume, bottles, amulets. Boy, this sounds like a 20th century, a 21st century woman. You know, a lot of it, doesn't it? And it's amazing that he includes the head coverings because he knows that certain women would make too much emphasis on that. In this prophecy. Okay, and their headbands, armless sashes, perfume bottles, amulets, rings, and nose jewels, their fine dresses, wraps, shawls, handbags, gauze scarves, linen underclothes, turbans, and caps. Then there will be, instead of perfume, a stench. Instead of a belt, a rope. Instead of a well set hair, a shaved scalp. Instead of a rich robe, a sackcloth skirt, and a slave brand instead of beauty. Your men will fall by the sword. That's what's coming, folks, a war. And your warriors in battle. Her gates will lament and mourn, ravage. She will sit on the ground. And let's look at what um, 
Gil said about the veil again. He mentioned something about the veils here. I can find it here. Find it in the King James Version here. Uh, let's see. There we go. And it's interesting, too, in Isaiah 3, verse 23, it says glasses. And that's something. <laughs> okay, so he says in uh, Isaiah 3, verse 23, veils. So the word is rendered, which, which women covered their heads, either through modesty or as a token of subjection to their husbands. So that's what that's talking about, basically. All right? And that's Gil again, the Hebraic expert who was a Baptist. Okay. So let, let's understand what pure worship is again. I'm going to go over that here quickly in uh, James 1, verse 27. James 1, verse 27. In the complete Jewish Bible version, it says, The religious observance that God the Father considers pure and fatherless is this. I mean, pure and faultless is this. The religious observance that God the Father considers pure and faultless is this. To care for orphans who are fatherless and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being contaminated by the world. So that is pure worship, because the word religion in the original Greek means worship. Okay? And that's that's what we need to be focusing on. Not zitzit, and even though that's important, but it's not as important, obviously, as taking care of the poor and the fatherless and keeping yourself unspotted or, or contaminated by the world. Okay? So that's that's the important thing. And who are going to be the people who are going to be tossing the lake of fire? And the Bible tells you who it is. Let's, let's turn to to uh, Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21, verse 8. It says, But as for the cowardly, the untrustworthy, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those involved with the occult and with drugs, idol worshippers, and all liars. These are all the people going to be thrown in the lake of fire. Their destiny is the lake burning with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Okay? So those are all the people. And then, you know, the faith has something to do with obeying God, keeping the commandments. So these are going to be the people that are going to be thrown in the lake of fire. I don't see anybody that fails to put a uh, mezuzah on his door being thrown in the lake of fire. Or I mean, I, I don't see that. I mean, that's, that, that was an important thing. But uh, let's turn to Matthew chapter 25 for you to really understand what I'm talking about here. In the context of being thrown in the lake of fire. Matthew 25, verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who my father has blessed. Take your inheritance. Oh, wait a minute. Let me... Uh... 
Matthew 25, verse 31. I'm sorry. Matthew 25, verse 31. This is a good way to end this program. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, accompanied by all the angels, he will sit on his glorious throne. In verse 32, all the nations will be assembled before him, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. The sheep he will place at his right hand, and the goats at his left. Verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you whom my father has blessed, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you from the founding of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you made me your guest. I needed clothes, and you provided them. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Now, do you see anything about wearing head coverings or, you know, all the other things that I talked about today? No, you don't see that. You see the heavy matters of the Torah, justice, mercy, and trust, all laid out here. Verse 37, then the people who have done what God wants will reply, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? In verse 38, when did we see you a stranger and make you our guest or needing clothes and provide them? Verse 39, when did we see you sick or in person and visit you? Then the king will say to them, yes, I tell you that whenever you did these things from one of the least important of these brothers of mine, it can be referring to Jews or believers, okay? You did them for me. Verse 41 of Matthew chapter 25, then he will also speak to those on the left saying, get away from me, you who are cursed. Go off into the fire prepared for the adversary and his angels. Verse 42, for I was hungry and you gave me no food. You were stingy. Thirsty and you gave me nothing, gave me nothing to drink. Verse 43, a stranger and you did not welcome me. Needing clothes and you did not give them to me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Verse 44, then... They too will reply, Lord, when did we see you hungry, thirsty, or stranger, needing clothes, sick, or in prison, and not take care of you? And verse 45, and he will answer them, yes, I tell you that whenever you refuse to do it for the least important of these people, you refuse to do it for me. And verse 46, the sad story. They will go off to eternal punishment, which, by the way, is one of the major doctrines of Elohim. But those who have done what God wants will go to eternal life. And what does God want? He wants us to care about people. That's what he wants. He wants us to care about people. Let me say it again. He wants us to care about people. If you don't care about people, God is not going to care about you. Plain as simple as that. Micah 6, verse 8, pop in my brain. It says, human being, you have already been told what is good. And what does Adonai demand of you? No more than to act justly, love grace, and walk in purity with your God. That is in the context of Matthew chapter 23, verse 23, folks. And that is the end of this Bible study. And I really hope that you understand that you better start caring about people. It's not all about you. The whole world's not about you. It's about everybody. And everybody has to, to learn how to care about one another. If you listen real closely to the beginning of this program, the audio version of, of the um, Bible verse of Psalm chapter 82, 
It explains to you that the reason why the world is the way it is today, the reason why the world is the way it is today, is because people don't care about one another. Verse 2 of Psalm 82 in the complete Jewish Bible version, How long will you go on judging unfairly, favoring the wicked? Selah means think about that. Verse 3, Give justice to the weak and fatherless. Uphold the rights of the wretched and poor. Rescue the destitute and needy. Deliver them from the power of the wicked. Verse 5, They don't know. They don't understand. They wander about in darkness. Meanwhile, all the foundations of the earth are being undermined. That is the reason why. It's because people don't care about one another. And because of that, that's why the foundations of the earth are being undermined. Plain and simple as that. We've got to stop playing religion and practice pure religion. Practice the heavy matters of the Torah. Stop trying to act all holy or set apart. That's what holy means when you're really not. To God, you're set apart when you start caring about people, when you start exercising justice, mercy, and trust. That's what the Elijah message is all about, the reconciliation of fathers to their children and the fathers teaching them this. What did they ask John the Baptist? And, you know, this scripture always comes up in my mind all the time. They said, what do we do to repent? What do you do to change? In verse, Luke 3, verse 9, already the axe is, the, is, is at the root of the trees, ready to strike. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown in a fire. And remember that Yochanan, the immerser, is a type of Elijah. He's, he came in the spirit and power of Elijah. And I'm preaching his message. I'm copying him. Verse 10, because I don't know if anyone else wants to. The crowds asked Yochanan, so then what should we do? Verse 11, he answered, whoever has two coats should share with someone who has none. And whoever has food should do the same. Same message. God's message. God gave Elijah the message to preach. And there's going to be many others eventually, as the prophecies reveal, that's going to understand this message and start preaching it too. Worldwide. Because, as he stated, as my program will end today, if you listen to it, if the message of reconciliation, of family reconciliation, starting with the fathers, turning to the, the, uh, to the children, and the children turning to the fathers, is not preached, this entire world will be destroyed. It's a very important message. And it must be preached. And we got to stop playing all this fake religion and practice pure religion and start caring about people. We shouldn't have the attitude that Cain has. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes, you are. Yes, you are. Okay, with that, may God bless and keep you this Shabbat for those who are keeping it or those who want to keep it. And God willing, I'll be available to you uh, either this Friday or... Um, at 9 o'clock, I'll, I'll just go ahead and post it here, um, hopefully in the next two or three days uh, or more days. But it'll be before Friday I'll have the, uh, the subject matter of the uh, Bible study for next week. Again, may God or Elohim bless or Yahweh bless and keep you, and I'll be available next week, God willing.
Malachi chapter 4. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. And ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Remember ye the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. 